Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, new census data show Metro Atlanta is growing fast and the entire state is becoming more diverse. So here's a question. How will these changes shape Georgia's redistricting when it comes to that? Well, UGA political science professor Charles Bullock breaks it all down. Looking forward to that conversation. Also this hour, encouraging drivers to take a cleaner commute. It's called the Millionaire Challenge. All that's just ahead. But first this. He's in. Herschel Walker, the former University of Georgia football star, is running for U.S. Senate here in Georgia. And according to the Federal Election Commission website, Walker filed his paperwork, listed an address in northwest Atlanta, and has a campaign website. In a statement released today, Walker cited, quote, Our country is at a crossroads and I can't sit on the sidelines anymore. In the United States Senate, I will stand up for conservative values and get our country moving in the right direction. It is time to have leaders in Washington who will fight to protect the American dream for everybody, close quote. So that means next year's Republican primary will be quite interesting as the winners will look to take back a Senate seat from Democrat Raphael Warnock. Now, other Republicans in that primary include so far Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black, Business Executive Kelvin King and Latham Sadler, a former Navy SEAL. In other news, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention right here in Atlanta continues to stress the importance of schools putting multiple COVID-19 prevention measures in place to keep students and educators safe. Dr. Rochelle Walensky says the strategies can reduce disease spread in classrooms. Layered mitigation strategies, including masking, as well as cohorting, ventilation and distancing and, and screening, keep our children safe in the school environment. As for outside the school environment, well, Walensky says it's important to reduce the spread of COVID-19 outside of schools. She added that can be accomplished by boosting vaccination rates. Now, a number of Metro Atlanta school districts have made measures like masks optional for students, even as the pandemic surges across the region. And finally, speaking of the coronavirus. Third look. All out blitz. Fly. Let's it fly. Back shoulder. Ah, you UGA fans can cheer for the dogs this upcoming college football season without mask, at least for the home games at Sanford Stadium. That's because as of now, mask nor social distancing measures will be mandated. And y'all can tailgate if you want. Fine. Now, fellow SEC conference rival LSU is taking a different approach to their home games. From the LSU Tigers Twitter account, it reads, quote, LSU will require all Tiger Stadium guests 12 years of age and older to provide proof of vaccination or a negative COVID-19 PCR test taken within 72 hours prior to entry, close quote. Back to the UJA Bulldogs and Sanford Stadium. As usual, 
it is expected every home game will be filled to the capacity crowd of 92,746. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, the Georgia legislature has the task of redrawing district boundaries this year. That means your congressionals, your congressional state house and state Senate seats are all probably impacted. Now, this summer, a state Senate committee held public hearings regarding redistricting, redistricting. But that was a lot of criticism because these public comment hearings were taking place before the census data was even revealed. Well, now the census data is out and joining me now to talk about how all of this work is the distinguished Charles Book, professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. You've heard him so many years here on WABE and in our reports and our election night coverage throughout the years. But without a doubt, one of the top political science experts in the nation. His close friends call him Chuck, but I'm going to call him Professor Bullock. Welcome to the program. You can call me Chuck. I answer to that quite regularly. Right. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. You know, there's so much to unpack here, Professor. But before we before we get into our discussion, I'm going to begin by letting you hear what some of the state Senate committee heard this summer from the public in those public hearings. Take a listen. My district, Senate District 55, is split between parts of DeKalb County and parts of Gwinnett County. Now, as a citizen of Gwinnett, I'd hate that because it makes it exceptionally harder for our state senator to advocate for solutions to problems specific to our community in Gwinnett, such as the 9.2% of us who currently live below the poverty level. Forsyth County, for a very long time, has been disenfranchised as a county. And that may seem odd because everybody looks at Forsyth County as a, as a, a, a place that is wealthy, a place that is successful, a place that has good schools, and, and a good community. But what we do lack is actual representation at the state and the federal level. Love our neighbors in Floyd County, but we have a lot more in common with our Whitfield County neighbors, the flooring industry, agricultural uh, developments, things of that nature, would make us pair better with them as a whole county and give our whole county more representation if we were partnered with them as a whole other than split in half. And we also need language access and ASL interpretation. No Georgian should be left out of this process. There also needs to be multiple in-person and virtual hearings across the state that actually fits in with days and time frames that most Georgians can come and testify. How is this committee going to have a hearing in Dalton and not have a translator on site, nor provide information in languages other than English? Nosotros merecemos ser parte del proceso. Sean justos y no dibujen sus mapas para dibujar sus votos. Enséñanos que nosotros podremos confiar en ustedes. 
If you were not able to understand what I just said, this is the reason why we need language access, because my community heard me, and now you know how excluded they feel. Professor, a lot of different comments there. What stood out to you? Well, that's fairly common for people to say, don't split our community. They would like to be whole, and especially in rural areas and small counties there, they say, if you split our county, we're not going to have influence with any legislator, so keep us together. Often they'll say, we don't care whether we're in a Democratic district or Republican district, as long as you keep us together. Now, part of the problem in terms of keeping these communities together is the requirement that you equalize populations. Mm -hmm. And when we come to congressional districts, it, it's to be taken absolutely literally. So the right now, the plan that was drawn 10 years ago, the range between the largest and smallest districts in terms of population is two people. That's probably what we're going to see again this year with regard to congressional districts. Our state house, state senate districts, we have a bit more latitude, but still, you may have to pinch off a bit of a county either to include or not include, because if you don't make that adjustment, you're going to violate the one-person, one-vote standard. People also, and I went to one of these hearings, saw some other ones, yeah, they, they want this to be transparent. Now, what I think they mean by that is they'd really like to see the legislators sit down, you know, maybe in the legislative chamber and start drawing maps. Well, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what they would like to see would be a time between when the maps are drawn and released, a time during which there could be comments so that, you know, you, you could comment, contact your legislator or talk on a show like yours or you know, make a posting, you know, rally your friends. That may or may not happen. But that is something else that I heard a number of people saying they would like to see done. Is there any benefit for the state Senate committee to hear from folks before the census information is revealed? Well, yeah, I think there is. And at least they are now well aware of the kinds of concerns that, that voters have out there. Uh, and certainly, it didn't come out of any of the, the speakers you had there, but some of the ones that I've heard were talking about uh, being unhappy, for example, that Clark County is split between two Senate districts. And mm -hmm. their argument would be, Clark County is if you have it in one district, it would dominate that district and probably be then a Democratic district, where if you split it, then you know, you, you've broken up that Democratic blue dot that is Clark County, and so it doesn't dominate it. So that's another one of the concerns of, you know, not simply keep our, our county together, but don't weaken us in terms of our partisan rep representation. You know, before we go even further, I think it's important for our listeners, and I've said this before, I treat every segment as if there's a listener that may not know much about what I'm talking about. So I think it's important sure. to give them a little history here in terms of the formula for how Georgia redraws its district. Now, it has quite a history, <laughs> and I know yeah. the courts have played a role as well, but I think one that stood out for me, and I read this in a piece that you authored for the Georgia Law Review, and you talked about Westbury versus Sanders. Inform our listeners, Professor, the significance of this case. Okay, yeah, this is what, the, what I refer to as the outset of the redistricting revolution. You know, before we get to the 1960s, the basis for representation, whether state house, senate, or congress, was counties. And sometimes in the state legislature, every county got at least one vote, none had more than three. Um, but then as we moved into this redistricting revolution, which said you need to have equal populations, in your districts, and Westbury versus Sanders is a Georgia case, mm -hmm. and it's the one that set the standard for equal populations in congressional districts. So once you do that, well, that means you cannot give every county its own state legislator. It also means that, again, as you go about equalizing, you're not going to be able to follow county lines. You're going to have to, you know, big counties like uh, Gwinnett and Fulton 
they're too big for a congressional district. So they're going to have to be cut up for that for no other reason. And then in other parts of the state, again, if you make those adjustments, you split counties. So that Clark County is geographically the smallest county in the state. Mm-hmm. You have to equalize the populations. Three of its precincts on the north side are attached to the ninth district, where everything else is in the 10th district. You know, it was interesting to read about how the 5th Congressional District, how those lines have gotten to where they are now as well. I'm curious, Professor, through your lens, what are we looking at more of the redistricting going to have an impact on the suburban communities or still around some of our, you know, we know Fulton and DeKalb. I mean, I think that's a given sometimes. Right. But when we get to some of these other districts, and particularly the suburbs, are we going to possibly see some some major impact here with the redrawing of these lines? Well, yeah, because what's happening in Georgia and, and most every other state is people are leaving rural areas and they may be moving to the cities. But also our cities are attracting people not just from rural Georgia, but literally from around the country. So, again, this notion that every 10 years you need to adjust populations means that we're going to be seeing some state house and state senate districts which are in rural parts of Georgia, particularly in South Georgia, which hasn't grown that much, those districts, some of those are going to disappear and new districts are going to pop up in the Atlanta metro area. Mm -hmm. So that alone is going to make our legislature a bit more urban oriented than it has been. When you say a bit more urban oriented, I I can hear someone now in a a car somewhere driving out on the outskirts saying, wait, what? What But what does that mean for me? So you mean that I'm my community, my district is going to be there could be like a, a snowball effect here. You, you trim off one area and it just kind of, it, it trickles down. It could start from around the Atlanta area and really impact a county that is hundreds of miles away. Is that what you're saying? Well, it could be, yeah. I mean, what's going to happen with the South Georgia districts generally, particularly those in rural areas, is they're going to get larger. You know, they may take in a whole new county or, again, they may have to split some county that hasn't been split before. So that's going to be happening in, in rural Georgia, particularly South Georgia. Around Metro Atlanta, what we're going to see happening is, in some instances, a district uh, in Metro Atlanta has grown so much, it's going to have to be subdivided. Part of it is going to have to be cut off. And so that may mean that you're used to being represented by Representative Smith or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now come 2022, Smith's name not going to be on the ballot. You haven't moved, but your district line is moving. Now mm-hmm. you may be in an open seat. If they created an entirely new district there, or rather than being in Representative uh, Smith's district, you're now representative of Thompson's district or something. So there's going to be a little bit of adjustment for voters who are used to going in saying, I know who I'm going to vote for. That name's not going to be on the ballot. Oh, wow. I actually have a question from a listener who wants to know, do all the states use the same type of formula with this equalization population you just talked about? Do all the states' legislatures use that? Yeah, they do, because that's federal. And not only just federal, it is the U.S. Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause. And the interpretation of that is that uh, if the districts aren't roughly equal in population, again, kind of plus and minus 5% is the, the rule which is often used for state House and state Senate. Uh, you know, people who are in a district which is uh, overpacked with over people could argue that their votes don't count as much as those mm-hmm. in an underpopulated district. And then for congressional districts, as I say, the interpretation of that has been, you know, anything, any deviation at all is too much. And so, even if you have just an an insignificant deviation, like 20 people between the biggest and smallest, someone could successfully challenge that by coming and saying, yeah, I got a plan that gets that down to two people or three people. The courts would throw out that that bigger deviation, although I say it's trivial, it's meaningless. 
you saying a, a population shift just I want to be clear that I heard you is small as 20 people Indeed, I'm drawing on a case up from Pennsylvania from wow. a number of years ago. I think it was 17 people, I think, was the difference. The court said, no, this person is coming with a, a smaller deviation. Therefore, we're going to throw out the existing. I didn't immediately adopt the one which the other person had to give, give the legislature the first chance to make corrections if, indeed, the courts find that what they've done is not up to snuff. Wow. The voice you hear is Charles, Bull- Charles Bullock, professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. And we're talking about redistrict- redistricting and the U.S. Census. Let's shift for a moment to the national scene for a moment, Professor, because when you look at all of this, do you see this redistricting possibly favoring the Republicans or the Democrats? You look at Texas, which is right. <laughs> going to be very interesting. Right. It picked up two seats. Florida picked up a seat. Colorado got a seat. Um yeah, and the thought is that you know the tiny, tiny margin that Democrats have in the U.S. House might just be wiped out by these shifting seats because the places that are losing seats, uh, you know, places like New York, uh, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, California, even lost a seat this time for the first time in history. Well, those are all blue states, mm-hmm. and so yeah, you're taking away what had been Democratic seats, and you're allocating places like Texas and Florida, which may then result in drawing them as Republican seats. So, yeah, overall, Republicans are probably going to pick up some seats just by through this. The term we actually use for this is reapportionment as opposed to redistricting. Mm-hmm. They often use some interchangeably. I want to talk about another term for folks who may not be familiar with it, and that is gerrymandering. Uh, break that down for our listeners. Yeah, gerrymandering, the simplest means that you don't like <laughs> what happened <laughs> to your party or, or sometimes to your race or ethnic group. Mm-hmm. You think that you're not getting a fair shake out of this. Uh, there are certain techniques which are generally thought of as being redistricting techniques. One of these would be, let's suppose we've got, uh, uh, well, I, it's probably a county thing I mentioned, where it's a very Democratic county. When you go and you split it so it no longer dominates a state Senate district, the term for that is you've cracked that district. You've split what would be a majority. Another redistricting technique is packing, and that would be, where you over-concentrate a group. Now, to win, yeah, you need to have 50% plus one. To have a comfortable margin, you might like to see the district of 55, 57%. Mm-hmm. But if you draw it so it's 75%, yeah, I mean, that means that there's kind of no condition you could think of under which you would you know, not reelect this particular person or particular party. So the term for that is you, you've got a lot of wasted votes. Yeah, people can vote, mm-hmm. but those votes would be more impactful if you took, say, drop that district down to 57%, took that other 18%, combined it in a neighboring district, and then the party uh, would maybe win two seats as opposed to having this one in which they're overrepresented. Another technique, which is often thought of as being gerrymandering, is when you draw two legislators into the same district. Again, if you're in an area that's losing population, that's bound to happen. Mm-hmm. But what a party might do uh, to kind of disadvantage its opponent is to draw two members of the opposition party into the same district and then have an open seat right beside them because it's hard to beat an incumbent. Mm-hmm. So you, you you kill off one of your two opponents <laughs> and you maybe then pick up the open seat you've just created for your side. Oh, boy, strategy at its best. How, when you look at also, Professor, with what's happened with the, the Voting Rights Act legis- legislation, with what's left of it, mm-hmm. as some would say, and looking at 2020 coming up, 
how do you see the impact there? We know that Georgia now obviously is not a state that has to get any preclearance for any changes. Um, many saw that as being a, a very, I guess, one of the last daggers. But then again, we've seen some other changes. How do you see all of this playing out in, in 2022 with what's left of the Voting Rights Act? And people saying that that no longer is is the the banner for folks to feel like they can their vote matters and they have a, a fair election process here. Yeah. And of course, keep in mind, the Voting Rights Act never looked at parties. So if you were you know, disadvantaging the other party, Voting Rights Act was not going to give you any relief there. Mm-hmm. But if you were, say, packing or cracking a minority group, yeah, the Voting Rights Act would be potentially would step in and prevent your plan even being implemented. Now, right now, without Section 5 being there to check that, you know, once the legislature draws a plan, it potentially is going to go into effect. Now, you could still bring a challenge under Section 2. Mm-hmm. And what we might see in Georgia would be, you know, um, Republicans aren't going to go and probably and break up any existing Democratic, black Democratic seats. You know, African-Americans are the core constituency, the strongest supporters for, for Democrats. And so if anything, what Republicans might do would be to pack districts with black voters. So, again, as I said, you know, 55, 60 percent is enough. 80 percent, you know, you don't need that. So what we might see if indeed uh, there's some plans that come out and boost uh, the black concentration in some districts way high would be a challenge filed under Section 2. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, at the very end of this last Supreme Court session, the Bronovich case, which came out of Arizona, the opinion there said, well, if it's a little bit of a disadvantage to minorities, we're not going to worry about it. Uh, Justice Alito said in his opinion, used the word trivial. I think what we're going to be seeing over this next next decade is further litigation, trying to say, all right, what's trivial and what really becomes significant? Now, during the last decade, there were seats challenging alleged packing of black votes in Alabama, Mm -hmm. North Carolina, and and, uh, uh, Virginia. And in each of those cases, the Supreme Court stepped in and said, no, you're going to have to redraw those districts. You're going to have to, you know, bring those black numbers down because you you disadvantage the minority community. Professor, I want to shift for a moment because, as as mentioned, coming into this segment, uh, Herschel Walker, the great UGA running back, is now in. Um, What do you make of his his candidacy is here? What do you think any – it's going to be a crowded Republican primary field. (laughs) Well, it is, right? (laughs) Uh, And I think that although he's never run for public office and he's, you know, just filed his papers yesterday – I think if we were to do a snap poll right now, we would see he would be the leading candidate among Republicans. Is that because uh, they, of Donald Trump? Yes, it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump uh, is you know, the lodestar for, for Republicans in this state and many states. And so, you know, the that he you know, kind of gives his blessing, puts his armor around Herschel and says, this is my man. Uh, that's going to give, give Herschel a huge leg up. Uh, will it be enough? Well, that's that remains to be seen because, you know, we know Herschel in his prime was just unstoppable, but he's playing a different game now and yeah. a game he is, is not practiced. Uh, and I think, again, as an athlete like he is, I think he recognizes, you know, you, you got to get in shape for, for the big <laughs> game. And so my professor, you're going to be able to walk around campus uh, after this, this interview. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Listen, you know what's interesting? But, go ahead, finish, Professor. I was going to say, you know, so he's going to be prepared to answer questions about whole kinds of policy issues. But he probably has you know, been part of his daily 
regimen in the past. You know, so what would you do if people ask him about Afghanistan or about COVID or about, you know, more equitable distribution of funds to public schools? And it's, the issues go on and on and on. It's interesting because let's say that Herschel Walker were to win the Republican primary. It would pit him against, obviously, Raphael Warnock, the first time ever in this state, two black candidates, right. you know, vying for that Senate seat at, at Raphael Warnock trying to keep his. You mentioned then earlier in the conversation about how race plays a part and can play a part in redistricting. Right. With Herschel Walker stepping in before these lines are redrawn or, or as you, you point, you know, it's a different term. Uh, makes a difference, you think, for some voters? Uh, here's how I think there can be a difference. And this does kind of touch tangentially on what we've been talking about redistricting. So you know, growth in urban areas. What are the blue parts of Georgia? These are the urban areas. Mm -hmm. The red areas are the areas which large numbers of them are losing ground. So one might even look at last January and November of 2020 and say, these are about the first times that urban Georgia has outvoted rural Georgia. And come 2022, that urban advantage is going to be a little bit greater. Even. So, uh, yes, Herschel Walker uh, has tremendous name recognition. He doesn't need to go out and spend money to introduce himself. Uh, he has a very loyal following of people who remember his glory days. But also Raphael Warnock gets credit on many people's eyes, including Republican strategists who say, of the four candidates running last year for the Senate, he had the best campaign. So, uh, you know, it, I think, may be a very different style with uh, Warnock perhaps being more immersed in, in policy and issues, uh, where uh, Walker may be more kind of trying to draw upon those good feelings from the past. You know, it used to be, professors, you know, that the Democrats can always depend on the certain areas around Atlanta, you know, blue remaining blue. That's mm -hmm. going to go to the Democrats. Right. And then the, the question was, okay, when you get outside of this area, especially when you get to the rural parts of the state, especially north North Georgia and then the southern part right. of the state, then, you know, Republicans did enough, just did just enough to get those votes, and that would put them over the edge. But as we saw with the census, Georgia's changing in terms of, now that doesn't necessarily mean just because of the race, the changes and being more diverse, that those are Democratic votes. Right. But you look at Latino and Hispanic vote, which is, I think we had a record number in terms of vote, voting this past election, big election season. So it, it could possibly see some difference in terms of who votes for whom, correct? Well, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And uh, generally we see less turnout in a midterm election like we're going to have in 2022 as opposed to a presidential election. And historically, that has worked to the advantage of Republicans. Democrats were less likely to fire up and come back if you didn't have a presidential campaign. But what we saw in 2018, where we set a record for a midterm election, is that Stacey Abrams is very effective at mobilizing voters. Now, mm -hmm. you know, assuming that she runs for governor, that's going to be a major factor in helping both herself, but also uh, Reverend Warnock. If she doesn't run, then I think uh, the Reverend's going to have have a bit of a problem because, uh, yeah, he is a draw, but he's probably not as big a draw as Stacey Abrams is in mobilizing Democrats. What's the, is there a time frame you think for Stacey Abrams to make that announcement? No, I mean, yeah, the reporters are always talking about, gee, why didn't she do anything? Why didn't she announce? Okay, if nobody knew who she was, then yeah, she'd need to announce. If she couldn't raise money, yeah, she'd need to be out there raising money now. But as it is, no other Democrat, I don't think, or no, no serious Democrat is going to jump into this. So it's not like she needs to get out there and put her marker down. So, no. And, it, 
you know, if you go back 20 years ago, at this point, this far removed from an election, we wouldn't be talking about people actually Absolutely having declared. Not. We might be speculating about this person might or might not. But, you know, you don't go back too far in Georgia history and serious candidates would wait until after the legislative session of that election year to announce. So, no, I think she can you know, do it whenever she wants to. And, you know, by her not announcing, she's generating media coverage by not announcing. I Reporters just spent, are, just, we just spent, what, eight minutes talking about her. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We, why didn't she announce? What's she going to do? So she's getting her name out there by, by not campaigning and announcing. And finally, as we wrap up, Professor, you know, I asked this question right after the, the last election, the presidential election, which was, is Georgia officially a blue state? Is it still a sort of a, what some folks call burp or whatever? Or is it just still a battle now, officially a battleground state? What is your take on it? Yeah, yeah I've got a new book on that. It's a seventh edition book, The New Politics, The Old South. And so on the cover of that, yeah, we colored Virginia blue. It has changed. But Georgia, North Carolina, Florida, those are purple. Texas, we've got kind of an orange, and the rest of the South is red. So, yeah, Georgia is not the red state that it was. It's not the state that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 by 200,000 votes. Yes, uh, 12,000 votes are therefore thereabouts went for, for Joe Biden, and roughly Warnock got about 90,000. But, no, we're very much a state that's in play. Uh, and so, you know, quality of candidates, quality of campaigns, just fluke things could happen and could tip us either Democrat or Republican. And what I think we're going to continue to see on going into this, this nuky decade of the 2020s is Democrats winning some and Republicans winning some. And it's not going to be a, a lock for either side. We shall stay. We shall stay tuned. Always good to talk to you. Charles Bullock, professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. If you don't listen to anybody else, listen to him. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation. Great to be with you. Let me know if any of those UGA fans get on you. We, we got something for them. Okay. All right. <laughs> Take care, Professor. Thank you. Bye. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, and it's Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Since August 16th, there's been a challenge, and it's about to end, the Millionaire Challenge. The goal, well, everyone doing their part to improve air quality. We'll learn more about that in just a moment. The challenge is being spearheaded by Georgia Commute Options, which is managed by the Atlanta Regional Commission and funded through the Georgia Department of Transportation. Roz Tucker is Managing Director for Georgia Commute Options and joins me now. I believe she's in her car. Yes, Roz. <laughs> Roz, Roz, you know the drill. <laughs> You're supposed to be at a desk somewhere. <laughs> Here you are commuting. <laughs> yes. Only time this week. Only time this week. And uh, I really wanted to make sure I could be for here for you, Rose. I can't miss an opportunity to talk to Rose Scott. So I had to make that work. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll go with that and we'll put that in a promo. Thank you so much. <laughs> Let, let's begin here, Roz, because I remember reading a headline last year and it said commuting to work after pandemic could be changed forever. And then a few months ago, I read commutes are slowly returning to normal as states reopen their economies. 
Any surprise there for how folks are still moving around, how they're getting around, and we're still in a pandemic? Yeah, folks are still moving around, but what we're seeing at the ARC is that they are moving around differently. So our traditional peak times are still not at the peak uh, that they were prior to the pandemic. So although traffic has picked up in the mornings and in the afternoons, we're still not at our pre-pandemic peak time numbers, if you will, what we would call, uh, you know, the, the the top congestion hours mm-hmm. uh, of the morning, you know, between that seven and and well, we had a we had a longer hour than most cities, but between seven and ten was typically our time frame. You're not seeing that span. However, we are seeing vehicle miles traveled uh, increase more over the weekend and across the evening time. So what we've seen happen is a shift mm-hmm. in what we call the VMT. People are obviously folks have been in for about eighteen months and just been ready to get out so they're getting out in the evenings they're getting out on the weekends and we still are seeing uh, a lot less traffic uh, during our peak times during this un, as we call this un, this extraordinary time that we've all been in what have you all been doing with this because this is new for you all too in terms of what you're trying to do did you see this as an opportunity then to either through campaigns obviously the one we're going to talk about here in a moment but did you y'all see this as an opportunity to really drive home the importance of alternative transportation and and how folks you know get around particularly here in this 13 county region absolutely rose you really hit the nail on the head because Our program exists through uh, the funding of GDOT, through Federal Highway, and those funds are specifically to help with congestion mitigation and air quality. And I I say air quality is the buzzword because all of the great work that our program does is really to increase uh, the good air quality across the region. And we saw nothing greater happen. Well, we saw a lot of things happen during the last 18 months, but nothing greater than the transition that we saw in uh, the region's air quality for the first time in almost 40 years, Atlanta had reached attainment Mm -hmm. as it relates to its air quality. And that is really the premise of this challenge is to say to the region, you know, we've been trying to do this together for almost 20 years now uh, with Georgia Commute Options, the Clean Air Campaign, and now we can see the benefits, the exact benefits of not having as many cars on the roads idling during peak time. And so we thought we would kick off, this is our inaugural event for the Millionaire Challenge, but really launch it to really uh, allow the, the region to take a look and say, you know what, it would be great if we could keep this good air quality through making clean commute choices. Well, let's talk about this Millionaire Challenge. Before we get into how folks are supposed to do it, what was the end goal here? You, there was a certain end goal you all wanted here. The end goal is that we would like to remove 1 million pounds of CO2 from the air or, or keep it from getting into the air. And I got the numbers today. We are almost at half a million. And so we still have, uh, you know, a few days left. Mm-hmm. in the challenge and, and i i'm really hopeful that we're going to get to that one million air uh, of, of not emitting uh one million pounds of co2 into the air here in the region well, you all but st- it's been very exciting well you all started august 16th this ends in a couple of days you said you're already about a, at a half million yes we're already at about a half million 
How did how are you all getting the word out? No one called me. <laughs> we have been uh, actually we we really had great interest uh, across the region with the media, but also I have to give credit to the region's corporation mm-hmm. companies across the region, and I won't start naming them all because I might miss one. But there are a lot of them who have shared this information with their workforce, with their commuters, their employees, and they have been logging their clean trips. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, that's really how we've gotten here. And, of course, we have the Georgia Commute Options app, and we're engaging our loggers in the app. We have over uh, 27,000 individuals who are signed up in our app. And so we've been engaging all of those folks, too, and they have been engaged in making sure that they're either biking, walking, taking transit, carpooling, or a lot of what we're doing now is teleworking as well, and that counts. So you've asked folks to track or and log what how they're how they're getting around. Is that how are you all measuring just how much you how much carbon you're you're removing from the air? Yes. So if you go into the My GA Commute Options app, and you can set up an account, you can just say I'm in. Sign me up for the Million Air Challenge, and then you uh, you'll just put in some standard information that it asks for. And then the system itself will calculate the CO2 for you. So the work, uh, the individual doesn't even have to do that manually. All they need to do is log into our system and register. And that's mygacommuteoptions.com. Once you register and you log your clean commute, our system will do the rest of the work. Someone listening may say, well, you know, that, that's pretty good. Why not extend this? Why not make this a, a longer period? Why not really get the word out and, and see just how much you can actually, you know, remove, how much carbon you can remove here? That is a great question. And, and that is something that, you know, we will definitely consider uh, with our team that works on these modal promotions. They do a great job. They've been very excited about this. And uh, we've just seen more traction than we had even guests would occur for this it's just been overwhelming the response and and the participation rates have been tremendous so we will certainly give that consideration let's talk about then in terms of where you see how you all see this landscape in terms of transit and mobility we've had this conversation before a couple of years ago we had a, a a series about transit and, and mobility gridlock you know what's moving atlanta uh, how do you see where we're going to move now as a region, hopefully when we all get through this pandemic, and whatever that normal, that normalcy in terms of commuting, whatever that's going to be, how, how do you see that this region move forward? Well, I will be honest, and I will say I know at ARC uh, we have been tracking and surveying the region every three months for the last uh, 18 months. We, have, we just did our sixth iteration of a survey to understand what the C-suite was thinking about the future of commuting uh, as it relates to teleworking and what commuters were thinking about the future of their commute. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have some great info. What we're seeing is that uh, the C-suite is saying there will be a continuation of uh, the majority of some form of hybrid, meaning that most folks would only go into their offices about two to three days a week, no more than three days a week. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see a change in terms of uh, the frequency uh, and the number of folks that are teleworking across the region. That's happening currently, but uh, we are also seeing those responses for into the future. Now, with what has happened uh, as a result of the pandemic, 
We are seeing fewer folks uh, wanting to utilize transit. Uh, we are seeing more getting on trains. There's starting to be an uptick in those who are fine with hopping on the train, but we're still seeing uh, lower numbers for individuals who are getting on the buses. Mm-hmm. We do believe, though, that once things, as you as you said, begin to be more normal, whatever that looks like, that folks will uh, return in full throttle to, uh, you know, transit in all of its forms. But we are seeing uh, a lot more people that even those who are driving into their offices just one or two days a week, well, they are driving in their own car. And so we are working to mitigate that, working on some unique things where they can carpool with others in their office. Uh, People want to carpool, but they want to carpool with people they know uh, for safety reasons. And they may want to carpool with people who are, I'm being fair, vaccinated. Exactly. And and all that encompassing with people that they know and they can have these conversations with. Absolutely. So um, the wonderful thing about our app, you're able to go in there and you can geocode a carpool. You can uh, ask for someone in your building or at your even down to your office. It's it's quite amazing uh, how our system can do ride matching uh, for folks across the region. And, and that's kind of where we are. We know because of the pandemic, people mm-hmm. are a little skeptical about getting on um, public transit uh, to its fullest degree. We are seeing uh, a return back. So those numbers have ticked back up. And we remain very, very hopeful that they will. But what we're trying to avoid is uh, seeing all of these single occupancy vehicles all jump back on the road at the same time. But I think our employers across the region uh, are um, very conscious of this, and mm-hmm. they are concerned. They don't want their associates who've been teleworking and who've been saying they've had a better quality of life because they've been able to avoid the morning commute. Uh, we we know they do not want to see them go back to those stressors mm-hmm. in the morning and afternoons, and so a lot of them are being extremely flexible and are implementing uh, very, very generous telework um, programs. You all, the region. you all over at Georgia Commute Options have had so many programs and incentives for folks. I mean, folks could earn money. <laughs> you have programs for not only just commuters, but employers as well and, and, and schools. Uh, when you think about where we are in terms of obviously with the pandemic and then what this region is trying to do in terms of its transit and mo- mobility, and what though right now do you think is needs to be improved or is missing. I mean, I can ask that here around the Atlanta area and folks talk about the Beltline and then I'll get an email from, you know, Beltline, the rail rail on Beltline folks. And I love y'all, so don't get mad. Rose, we need more, we need light rail on the Beltline. You know, what do you see as, as what's missing and what needs to happen? Let's say in the next 10 to, to 15 years, though, in terms of that, is it more light rail? You know, heavy rail is so expensive, Roz, you know that. Absolutely. Those things are very important. And I will say what I am very excited about is the movement with the trails connecting across our region. We are we have seen a 19 percent increase just over the last 18 months and individuals who are actually riding their bike. And even prior to the pandemic, as you know, uh, particularly in the city center and places that were close to the trails, 
uh, we saw about a 12% increase in individuals who wanted to actually ride their bikes to work. Mm -hmm. And all of our wonderful transit uh, providers have those bike racks on there. So you could you could get that bike on there and, and then finish pedaling to your office. And so I'm extremely hopeful and excited about all of the momentum for the region's trails, connecting, whether it be from Cobb, to let, connecting that to the Beltline and connecting that to uh, Path 400. And, and once that's all said and done, you'd essentially be able to hop on your bike from Cobb. And if you wanted to ride into the city, you could on your bike. Uh, we even have some associates on a trail, but not on, on a, the street. Uh, on a now, that's the key. That's the key, Rose. <laughs> on a trail, on a trail. Now, I must say, I have some associates who've been trying it out. They're they're avid cyclists. I will say, they're not novices, but they're avid avid cyclists, and they have been riding from the Cobb area into, I should say, the Smyrna area into the city, and we are really, really excited and very hopeful about all of the momentum that is happening with the trails networks across the region. All right, Roz, before we say goodbye, once again, for folks who still, you say there's still time to be, to take this air million, the million air challenge. What do you want folks to do? Want folks to go to mygacommuteoptions.com and just select sign me up. And then you can start logging. And I want to say we have some great prizes. We have a $500 gift card for outdoor here from high country and we've also partnered with trees atlanta to plant a tree in folks's honor and i think those are just amazing ways to uh honor uh our environment with this as well and are you part of the millionaire challenge i am part of the millionaire challenge (laughs) i can't win a prize though but i am part of the challenge (laughs) well how much carbon are you personally removing from the air well, I've been teleworking uh, since the challenge started, so I think I've done pretty well. Today is my first day having to actually head out to a meeting in my car, and then the rest of the week I'll be teleworking. So I think I'm 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 not making as big of a footprint uh, here in the region. You, you, I feel really good. You couldn't take a scooter to this meeting? Well, I, I live out <laughs> about 25 miles out of the city. Let's say that. <laughs> Oh, Ross Tucker is a managing director for Georgia Commute Options. See, it's not just me, folks. Y'all send me emails about Rose's anti-scooter. I'm not anti-scooter. I just don't want them all over my I would love to take a scooter, but I don't know that I'll get get down 75 in that scooter. I do think the scooters are very important because for some folks, you know, getting to and from work, you know, still... I mean, those scooters, you know, that they, they are they are so important. So I want folks to know that. Ross Tucker, man, Ross Tucker, Managing Director for Georgia Commute Options. Thanks to you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We'll have a link to the Millionaire Challenge on our website. Thank you, Rose. You have a wonderful day. You too. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can always send me an email because y'all love to do, and I love it. Continue. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. I want to hear your thoughts about what you heard, the conversation with Professor Charles Book and redistricting. What do you think about that? And also... Can we achieve what Roz Tucker talked about? Can we get a million pounds of carbon out of the air by 
what, two days from now. Let me know. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.